Uh, yes, we're in uh, John chapter 9 uh, this week. Um, something that we've uh, put on, uh, sort of implemented is that we've uh, put the link to the YouVersion uh, notes up on the screen there in the form of that QR code. So if you zoom your phone in on that, it will open up to the YouVersion app at the right place uh, with today's reading and also some notes. And you can fill in those notes and save that later and you can go back to that uh, in future. And that's something that we're going to try to do uh, as we go along. Now, just before I get going, uh, last weekend we prayed about miracles. And in a, in a minute, I'm going to pray that God continues to bring miracles or bring, just bring miracles full stop. And um, you may recall that uh, a large sinkhole opened up at the bottom of Edward Street as we turn right into Helena Street, which is about the most annoying place for a sinkhole to ever arise. Can I just point out to you that for the council to fix that in sort of five days, that is a miracle right there. That's great, isn't it? Because lots of us prayed about that. Just to give you a context, the last time we had a sinkhole on Edward Street, uh, it took them six months to, f to fix it. And now we could drive past it, but they, and they coned it off. And I guess maybe they, they just jumped on it a bit more, perhaps because there's a business around the corner. I don't know. But I think our prayers made a difference. Uh, so thank you to you for that, because that's opened up access to our car park and to the back of the church so much better. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, awesome stuff. Um, yeah, let's open it in prayer. Uh, something I'd like us to do at the beginning of each of our messages in this series uh, where we're looking at the miracles of Jesus is to pray that Jesus would do some miracles in this season. Amen? Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? So let's just, just pray. You don't need to stand. Just pray with me, though, where, you, where you're seated. Lord Jesus, I just ask in this series on miracles that you would move in a strong way. Lord, I petition you that from heaven you would hear my request and that you would move in the lives of people in our church together here in BCC, but also across our city. I pray that there'd be a rise in the number of miracles around the churches in Birmingham. I pray for an outpouring of your spirit to um, be tangible uh, to the believers in this place and in this city. I pray that you would do uh, extraordinary things really strange things, really wonderful things over this season of miracles because, Lord, we believe that you are a miracle-working God and that you can do whatever you like. We ask, Jesus, that you would move on our behalf and you'd do some stunning, stunning stuff amongst us. We give you thanks and praise for the filling in of a sinkhole, but, Lord, we have some big needs and we ask that you would move in power amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So back in 2015, a woman called uh, Cecilia Bleasdale was out shopping, and she took a photograph of a dress from a retailer called Roman Originals at the designer outlet Cheshire Oaks, which is just north of Chester in England. Now, she took the photograph of this particular dress uh, because she was planning to wear it at her daughter's wedding. And so she took the photograph and sent it over to her daughter to have a look. Now, when her daughter got the photo, they had a bit of a disagreement over the dress, over the color of the dress in the photograph. And I'm going to get um, Elizabeth to pop the photograph up on the screen for you to see. Now, that is the original photograph of the dress. Now, the bride, having had a, a quite a lively discussion with her mum, posted that image on her Facebook, and her friends also had a lively debate about what color it was. Some of them saw it as blue with black lace, uh, while others saw, a, saw it with, as white with gold lace. 
Now, there was a member of the band who was performing live at the wedding who saw the mum wearing the dress in person and who, who kind of entered into the discussion and said, well, that's obviously blue and black. You know, in, in, you know I can see it. It's blue and black. So she posted the photograph on her uh, t- uh, Twitter feed, I think it was, and then someone at BuzzFeed, which is a media company, I think, in the States, who was connected to her, reposted it on their Twitter account. Um, and, and, and then from there, it went viral around the world. It set the record for the most number of concurrent views of a Twitter post at BuzzFeed. At one point, 673,000 people were discussing the picture on, uh, on Twitter. Now, the picture of the blue and black dress, or gold and yellow dress, depending on how you see it, quickly became an internet viral sensation. And the people, people today are still divided over its colors. Just a quick straw poll. Put up your hand here if you think it's blue and black. Okay, wow. You guys have something wrong with you. Uh, what, is, what is your problem? Put up your hand if you see it correctly, which is it's gold and white. There we have. See, look, all, all the wise, sharp people in the audience see it as gold and white. Okay. <laughs> I have had discussions with people about this. I have had discussions with people about this where people have told me that the rods and the cones in the back of my eyes have got some fault with them. Literally. There's no real consensus on what the story is with the dress. What's quite interesting is that nobody's been able to kind of quite reproduce an image with the same kind of reaction, even though people have tried. Some scientists believe that the differences in opinion are genuinely because our humanity is divided roughly into two camps and that the image sits right on the kind of the watershed. You know, like a watershed is a geographical feature which separates out where water flows one way this way, water flows one way the other. How are we doing? Just need to adjust the mic. Okay, here we go. Thanks, Michelle. Nice one. Um, So a watershed is where water flows one way down one side of a mountain and then the other way down the other side. And that invisible line in the middle is what separates the course of where the water goes. And it seems that visually this picture sits right on a watershed where most people have a vision, like a vision crossover uh, between uh, black and blue and gold and yellow. Other people have suggested that it might, be to do with some, it might be something to do with the surrounding visual cues about light and shade. And it's got nothing to do with the dress. It's to do with how we take in the whole picture. Uh, so have a look at the screen in a moment and uh, ha- take a look at this picture here. Elizabeth's going to put up another one for us. Now, this is a picture of a woman in a genuinely black and blue dress, uh, but has a little bit of a yellow filter over it on the left-hand side there. And then the woman, the woman on the right, uh, she's wearing a genuinely yellow and white dress, but she's got a blue filter over it. Now, if you instantly glance at that, it's really hard to admit that actually the apron that both of the women are wearing, where it's covered by the filters is an identical color. And the way that the pictures have been drawn is you can see it's an identical color because they've drawn a bar in the middle to join the two together. Now, just in case your eye is still deceiving you and you think there's no way that those two um, aprons are the same color underneath their respective filters, um, I had a little bit of a play in Photoshop to cut out a bit from the left and put it on the right just to prove that it's definitely the same color. Okay, so um, Elizabeth, if you just play that for us, and camera team, if you zoom in on that little video, I'll try and get out of the way. So this is me uh, in Photoshop, 
because I couldn't quite believe that the little section from that bit of the apron was the same as the section uh, on the right. And so what I thought I'd do is I'd just actually prove it to myself, and I recorded myself doing that. Um, so you can see being dragged there. If I just move out of the way a minute. You can see that it's the same color, can't you? Even though the bar is in the middle, your eye does something to make you think that those two aprons are different, doesn't it? So at an initial glance, your, your mind is playing tricks on you. Now, there are some things in life, I would put it to us all, which some people genuinely perceive differently to others. They just see it different. Now, the reason that the picture of the dress is so fascinating is it sits right on the boundary points between the two. And it's divided opinion ever since. Now, today, we're continuing in part two of a series called Miracles, the Miracles of Jesus. And we're looking at this miracle in John chapter 9, which is performed by Jesus on a man born, born blind, but who gets his physical sight fully restored. Uh, and uh, Toby uh, read that for us really well. Now, what makes the miracle so interesting is that the various different perceptions about what is or equally is not going on um, from the different people involved is, is very apparent. You've got different groups of people whose perception is very different at different points. Um, so the different people involved in the, in the miracle have a different point of view about it. And what we see is that that reflects them more than the objective facts of the miracle or the content of the miracle itself. In other words, one man can receive physical healing of his sight, but then there are lots of different reactions to the same event revealing some stuff about us, revealing some biases we might have or some presuppositions we have, some culture we might have, some, um, some background tradition. Um, uh, just to extend the example from the dress, we genuinely seem to have one camp that sees black and blue, and we, we also genuinely seem to have another camp that sees white and gold. Now, let me talk you through briefly what is going on um, in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 5 as a foundational start point, because there's some quite key things that happen in the first five verses. Just, uh, just come with me on that just a moment. Let's open up by first of all saying that Jesus is passing by and he sees the blind man. Now, that is one of those verses that we, atten we tend to miss. We get straight into the story, we move on to the action, we're like, ooh, what's going on with the action? Don't miss that first verse in John, John 9, verse 1. Uh, Jesus is passing by and he sees the blind man. Now, why is that significant? It's an interesting thing for John to open an episode about sight by saying that Jesus is the first one doing any seeing. He's the one to do the spotting. Now, I don't think it stretches things to say that John is saying that the starting point and foundation for all seeing and for all wisdom is Jesus himself. Now, it's quite a subtle thing, but I think it's there. So, in other words, if we're not sure how to see something, we can always get great guidance first by trying to find out how Jesus sees it. So, let's just rewind to the basics. Jesus is walking along. He sees a man with no sight. And he has both the compassion and the power to address this, and he does. That's what's going on. Now, the man born blind, on the other hand, has never seen a single thing. Think about that for a moment. He's not seen anything ever. Everything in his world will have been confined to his four other senses up to this point. See, he doesn't have any seeing. 
Now, I, just, I, was, I was speaking to a lady called Margaret in between the services, and she said that this is actually a double miracle, and she's right. Not only has the physicality of this man's sight been restored, but also the intelligence in his brain to make sense of what he is seeing has been restored as well. Because there's one thing to put hardware in and make that correct. It's totally another to put some software in on top of that hardware and for it to all run together, to use an analogy from the world of computing. So what's happened here is this man's had his physicality of his sight healed and sorted out, but he's also had all the software and the interpretation and the brain signals to go with it. That's why it's such an incredible miracle. The disciples then make a suggestion about something that actually isn't there. Say that again. The disciples make a suggestion about something that isn't there. What they do is they go back into their Jewish tradition, and their Jewish tradition tells them to see something that actually isn't there. They leap straight to, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, that's a view that is not what is in front of them, or not what the actual cause is, but it's from their culture. And can you see what John is doing? He's trying to say, watch out, people, because your culture gets you to see stuff that sometimes isn't there. Now, Jewish tradition said that you could sin in the womb. Now, I, I, I have a struggle with how, how, does, how does that work? How do you sin in the womb? I guess you give your mother a bit of a kick. That could be a sin, couldn't it, I suppose? Like, but would that be something that would translate to... Um, uh, uh, would, that, would, that be would that translate to blindness? You know, that seems very harsh for God to do that, doesn't it? So I'm not, I'm not convinced about that. I think that that's just Jewish tradition speaking. Um, <clears throat> Jewish tradition also says that the parents could sin, and then kids might pick up sickness and misfortune as a result of that. Now, I think there's some truth in some of that. So, for instance, if parents have got a, a difficulty with alcoholism, it's possible that that can affect children, and then they grow up with a tendency towards that themselves. I can see how that might work. Or people who you know, come from a family system that's pretty damaged, that, that their kids would grow up in that family system and therefore suffer the same kinds of misfortunes. So I can see some truth in that. But Jesus basically corrects that assumption from the disciples, and he says, in this case, neither of these things is true. Neither his parents sinned, nor he sinned. And then he says this, uh, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read something like that, it's inevitable in our thinking to go to that place that says, well, maybe God sometimes permits misfortune in order that he might then turn it around later on and reveal his glory. In other words, something in God's way of seeing the world and the way of organizing reality is that he's permitted this blind man not to have sight up to the point from, from birth up until now in order that then a miracle might happen and God's glory might be made manifest. That seems to be the logic of what's being said there. And there's some support and justification for that, and certainly the CSB translation and many of our translations would go, go, go with that. And if we look in the Old Testament, Job's experience was that he suffered, didn't he? And God permitted the devil to let him suffer up to a point in order to make a, a case for that Job actually just liked God for his own sake and not because of all the things he had. Um, so there's a case for that. And also we see this with Jesus, of course. You know, Jesus uh, went through hell on the cross, literally, and was, that was permitted by his father. So there are seasons or points at which misfortune or setback is permitted by God, and there's a case to say that that's the case here in this bit of John chapter 9. However, let me suggest another perspective to you. And this is a perspective that can open up when we pull away a tradition or we pull away a way of seeing things. 
Greek manuscripts were all written in capital letters and had no punctuation. And so scholars have had to supply their best understanding to translations. It is also perfectly legitimate to translate John 9, verses 3 and 4 in this way. Listen to this. Neither this man sinned nor his parents. Full stop. But so that the works of God may be revealed, him, it, it revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. Can you see the sense difference there? In other words, it's, uh, this implies that the man was not born blind in order that God's glory might be revealed, although that's possible, but instead that Jesus needs to get on with healing him while he can, while he's able to do ministry, because there's a time coming when he won't be able to, in other words, his trial and crucifixion. In other words, this is a classic instance of scripture where there are two genuinely valid approaches Neither interpretation violates the moral structure or standards of Scripture too much, but each gives a slightly different sense. And the slightly different sense comes from people supplying their own best interpretation of things like punctuation and sense. Now, I personally prefer the one I just shared with you, so not the one that we read in the CSB. And, and that's a bit of a brave position to take, because I'm just little old me, and then the CSB have had all of these armies of scholars translating things. But I, I like that. I like the idea that it's got nothing to do with the man. And it's simply because Jesus sees an opportunity to bring glory to God while he's got the time to do ministry. So I think that that's an, a little instance of black and blue dress versus white and gold dress right there. Let me just explain while it is day. Verse 4, it refers to the availability of Jesus to perform his ministry while he can before the darkness of his trial and crucifixion arrive. Um, you know, Jesus is speaking in sort of the language of light and darkness to refer to his ministry. Now, it also makes complete sense to me that if Jesus is the light of the world, he would get on and do both physical and spiritual miracles of healing in people's spiritual understanding as well as in their physical sight. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if Jesus is a, a miracle worker, if he's the son of God, and, and, and he's all about opening up people's perception then what better thing to do than a series of miracles in which people's physical sight is healed and also their uh, spiritual insight and understanding is developed? Does that make sense? Yeah, and so what we'll see in this course of this series is quite a bit of emphasis on sight and insight uh, that goes with sight. Just remember the opening of John's Gospel, John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John opens his gospel with a statement about Jesus being the light of the world, and then he picks it up here in John 9 with this incredible miracle of reintroducing light to someone's mind and body. It's effectively what he does, isn't it? So, that's the foundation, just gets us going in terms of how we think about this chapter. Um, then the, the man goes off with mud over his eyes, doesn't he? Um, are there any households here where the woman of the house will sometimes lie back in a chair with little bits of cucumber over her eyes just to give her eyes a rest and to, to restore the, you know, to take away the wrinkles? Is that just, there's one or two brave enough to admit it. Thank you so much for being so honest. I kind of think this is a little bit like that scene that the man's kind of, you know, he's got a couple of completely solid mud packs and he's feeling his way through the streets, isn't he? Or perhaps he's got his stick or perhaps he's got some mates. They're going to the pool of Siloam. They get to the pool of Siloam, he washes and bang, suddenly he can see. 
That's the, that's the miracle that's happened here. So, um, he, he, you know, he, he washes his eyes, he comes back seeing, and suddenly everything's different. Now, what I, what I want to say to us all this morning is that once this miracle has happened, opinion fragments. Have you ever been to a charity shop where out the back they've got a mirror they can't sell because it's cracked? Have you ever, ever seen one of those and you walk, maybe you look through or you walk past the mirror or you've been perhaps in a place where the mirror's cracked and what's happened is it's gone off in different tangents, the crack, and as you walk past you see yourself like, it, not smoothly, it's not a smooth reflection, it's like, it's a mosaic of reflections, isn't it? A cracked mirror is a, is a, a, a multifaceted reflection back to you. What I think is happening in this miracle is pretty much that. Opinion fragments in a number of directions, just like a mirror breaking into a bit of a mosaic of reflections. So at a basic factual level, a miraculous healing has occurred because Jesus simply has the power and the compassion to do it on the simple level. But on the more complicated and nuanced level, John wants to use the occasion of the miracle to say some things about the variety of the ways in which people see or perceive, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual as well. So let's break these down into three areas that can help us to respond to what John is saying. So let me, let me open by asking a question. Number one, who are we most like in this event? Who are we most like in this event? So just as we saw with the dress story, and we had different reactions, I want to suggest that each of us brings our own preconceptions to pretty much everything, and that that has a large say in how we see the world. Now, there are four main groups of people <coughs> in John chapter 9, and they each bring their own perspective. First of all, the disciples, and we saw them originally assuming some things about the causes of blindness, which Jesus has to correct, uh, don't we? The second group is the neighbors, now, their reference points are mainly historical, based on what they knew of the man back when he was blind. Now, some, some of the neighbors think he's the same guy. Um, some of them think that he might be someone who just looks the same, um, because to be the same person yet healed would be too much of a stretch of the imagination. It's preferable to believe there might be a doppelganger, or a twin, or another person who looks just like him, and they're inventing things. Third group is the Pharisees, and you know, I find it ironic that their questioning of the blind man eventually descends into insults, doesn't it? Uh, and the charge of being steeped in sin, that's pretty ironic because they themselves are so steeped in tradition that, that they are not able to see uh, at all objectively what has really happened. <coughs> Fourth is the parents. What we can observe about the parents is they're quite defensive on their boundaries, aren't they? They're prepared, that, you know, they're quite sort of tight on what they're prepared to confirm or not confirm. Uh, yes, he is our son. Uh, yes, he was born blind. No, we don't know how it happened. No, we don't know who did it. Uh, and by the way, go and talk to him, not us. So what I want to ask us all today is which one of these people are we when it comes to a miracle like this? Are we like the disciples leaping to unfounded conclusions? without giving things sufficient time to unfold? Do we need to wait just that little bit longer before supplying our own answers? You know, there's a design in our heads and it's got two ears and one mouth and that suggests to me two-thirds listening, one-third speaking. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> oh, that didn't land well. Okay. <laughs> Do we need to ask Jesus what the answer is a little bit more in our lives, is what I'm saying? Or are we like the neighbors 
Some of them surprised, some of them confused, some of them a little skeptical. Are we perhaps stuck in our past reference points and only using that to go on? You know, are we the kind of people that can't ever see any possibilities in the future for somebody? Some are even leaning to the idea of this imposter or someone extra to supply information to make things fit. And that tells me that that's a group of people who are prone to fabrication or speculation even. Did you also notice that none of these neighbors are delighted for this guy? Like, that's pretty bad. Can I just say that? Like, if, if a guy on our street suddenly got healed and was able to see, I hope that I could be at least big enough to go, well, wow, that's incredible. Congratulations. Come and play FIFA with me now that you can see, you know. Uh, I just think, I, I think that's, you know, where's the delighted party to celebrate the circumstances? Grumpy neighbors or what, you know? And then are we like the Pharisees? Are we disbelieving? Are we critical? Are we sticking to our religious standpoints like glue? Are we trapped in dogmatic positions? Are we taking all of our guidance from those traditions that we, that we rely on? Are we speaking out from a place of superior prejudice? And we can do that. You know, we can do that as Christians. We can go, well, I'm a Christian. I've got Jesus on my side. And, you know, you just don't see things properly. You know, we can do that so easily, can't we? I think I counted up 12 specific points in my research for this, for this message where the Pharisees uh, analyzed the events in John 9 inaccurately because they cannot see clearly. 12. Now, I'm, I'm not going to list them all because they're all really boring uh, for one thing. So I'm just going to pick two, okay? One is that they assume that Jesus is a sinner. That's an assumption. Now, for most of us in the world, that's a fair assumption that we all have a struggle with that. But in the case of Jesus, they are wrong. That's an unfair assumption. <coughs> he is just not a sinner. Another is where they're quite happy to reference Moses, but not Isaiah. Isaiah mentions in, the three, places how a time, in three places how a time is coming uh, when the blind will start seeing. Thank you so much, Ian. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. So these Pharisees are quite happy to reference one of their historical leaders, but they're not happy to reference them all. They're very selective or very partial. They've got a narrow, blinkered mindset. They conveniently miss the fact that Isaiah mentions in three places how a time is coming when the blind are going to be able to start seeing. Isaiah 29:18. on that day the deaf will hear the words of a document, and out of a deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see proclaims Isaiah. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the, and, the, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, in order to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house, which is the verse that Jesus uses to launch his ministry in Luke chapter 4. Did you know, this is, this is a key, strange thing, the Jews do not have Isaiah 53 in their Bible. Did you know that? Now, if you don't have Isaiah 53 in your Bible, what does that lead you to see about Jesus? Well, it means you can't see certain very, very important things about Jesus because Isaiah 53 has some incredible prophecy about who Jesus is. And if that's not there, and it's been removed by somebody because they've got some suppositions about not wanting people to see things, then inevitably you're not going to see what you're supposed to see. Does that make sense? Or are we like the parents 
sticking rigidly to the boundaries of what we will or won't accept, concerned about our social standing, very careful to make some, uh, to avoid making any evaluations on a situation. Now, I think John includes all these different people, not just because he's faithfully reporting what's happened, but because each group shows us pitfalls to avoid when it comes to miracles. So if we're a disciple, let's be teachable and let's be patient. Let's watch things unfold. Let's go to Jesus for the answers. If we're a neighbor, let's believe it when people report amazing good fortune and let's celebrate with them. If we're a parent, let's stick our necks out for our next of kin and, and uh, our blood relatives and let's, be, let's do be making some evaluative comments and saying, yeah, I think my son was healed by the son of God. Let's be saying that. And if we're a Pharisee, let's watch our steep traditions that we've got uh, and be very careful about those. And you'll notice in the, in the New Testament, there are a couple of Pharisees who are noticeably for Jesus. Nicodemus and uh, also Joseph of Arimathea. They're, they're teachable, they're open, they receive who Jesus is. So my first challenge to us this morning is, who are we most like in this miracle? And I think the answer is actually, we're a, we're a bit like all of the people in the miracle. And that's why John presents us with this fragmented mirror type picture of these responses. Number two, the spiritual sight of the healed man keeps on improving. You might have spot, spotted this already, or you might have been taught this in another setting, but let me just bring this to you in case you, you're not aware of this. The spiritual sight of the healed man keeps on improving. The healed man seems to me to demonstrate some very healthy responses for somebody who's suffered so much setback, doesn't he? He's heading, he has an incredible encounter with, Jesus, uh, encounter with Jesus. He receives a unique miracle. That he's right. There's no one else born blind that gets healed in the whole of Scripture. That's not heard of in history. And that story absolutely affirms to us, doesn't it, that one big, strong, direct experience of Jesus cuts right across all the debate, doesn't it? You know, he says, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And there's nothing that can be taken away from that for that man. Nothing at all. Very, very strong, very powerful. It only takes one big fat testimony to put down strong roots, and suddenly you've got a big strong faith. And that's, that's this, the case with this man. But John is also at pains to show us a marked development um, in the healed man's spiritual awareness as well as the physical healing. So not only does he get a physical miracle with the associated brain wiring to go with it, he also gets a growth and a journey in his appreciation of who Jesus is. Um, just come with me on this a moment. He starts off by calling him the, the man called Jesus, verse 11. They ask him who it was that did it, and he says, this man called Jesus. It's like saying, a guy did it. You know, I met a bloke, and he said this. You know, it's like very casual. It's a person. Then it goes to uh, verse 17. They ask him some more questions, and he says, well, he declares Jesus to be a prophet. Well, a prophet is a person who gets God's sight about something. You know, when somebody gives a prophecy, it's because they've been given something that God sees to pass on to someone who needs to see it. That's what a prophet, that's what a prophet is, and, and the, man, the healed man calls Jesus a prophet. Next, he describes Jesus as God-fearing and obedient. He says this about him. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. He's starting to spot that Jesus is highly obedient, listens to God, and does God's will. He's starting to work out a bit of who Jesus is. 
Then in verse 35, verse 36, when Jesus comes back to him to speak to him about what's happened, and Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Um, <clears throat> the man then says, um, yes, sir, show me who he is so that I might believe in him. Can you see there's some steps on a journey from a bloke to a prophet to somebody God-fearing who does God's will to the Son of Man? But it doesn't just stop there. He starts to use very respectful language. I think in the CSB there, it then says, sir, doesn't it? Very respectful and polite. And then it finishes in verse 38. It says, he, sa he says, Lord to Jesus, and he worships him. So the healed man's appreciation from the, for the Lord Jesus grows and, and deepens steadily throughout John 9. From, from the beginning to the end, we see a marked journey of appreciation going up of who Jesus is. And so my question to us all, given that John has shown us this, is our own appreciation of Jesus growing and deepening as well? Is it now? Have you flatlined when it comes to Jesus in your life? Is it just the same Jesus all the time? Or is Jesus increasing for you as a person? Are you deepening in your journey with him? Are we getting more and more clear in our lives about who he really is? You know, can we point to an unequivocal massive testimony in our lives? And then from that point onwards, can we say, yes, I can see some definite steps upward in terms of more traveling and journeying with this amazing person? Third thing, and the final point to say, we are all born spiritually blind. You know, we, 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 we read this story and we, we think, ah, oh, poor guy. You know, imagine being born blind. Imagine that living without sight from the beginning of your life. How would you cope? You know, what, what John is doing by including this in his story is he's saying, hey, yeah, have some sympathy for this guy, be amazed at the miracle, but do not forget we're all spiritually born blind. And we need someone to come along into our lives to open our eyes spiritually. And guess who that person is, everyone? It's Jesus. That's what John's doing by including this in his gospel. Uh, John says at the end of John 9, if only the Pharisees could have acknowledged their spiritual ignorance, they would not have been guilty of sin. But instead, they're very supercilious and full of themselves, aren't they? You know, they cast the guy out, don't they? They've, they've, there's very much a two-tier system going on with, it, with the Pharisees. And if you don't meet their criteria, you're out. That's not how it's supposed to be. You know, Jesus opens his most important teaching ever in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.3, with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What he's saying is, blessed are those people who are painfully aware of the lack inside or how, how, far, fall, how, how far short they fall of the glory of God, and therefore they are humbled by that, and therefore they ask for help. That's the starting place. And this, this, this man is in exactly that place because he's really aware of his lack. Jesus comes along and meets it, and that is a picture of all of our lack. So we can't be thinking, well, I'm lucky because I'm on the seeing side of the fence physically. Well, we might think that. But what John's point is, no, remember, all of us are on the same side as this man. We can't see spiritually, and we need Jesus to help us. I like to think that uh, this man uh, who had been healed, had he been present at Jesus' trial, you know, the mock trial that he had before he was crucified, um, would have testified that he had indeed seen the Son of Man. Because that was the whole deal, wasn't it? The religious authority, he, Jesus eventually says, well, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and, and, and they just go, oh, blasphemy! You can't say that! Only the Son of God can say that. 
blinded to the fact that he actually was the son of God. I'd have loved if the healed man could have somehow been there like a fly on the wall or, or in that environment or saying, well, hold on a minute, he healed me. I've seen the son of man and he's right here. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come back up and I'm going to suggest some responses to us. Why is it in this gospel that we get to watch an event unfold in which someone is sent to a pool called sent by someone who has been sent from heaven? Why do we get that? Why does John do this? And I think John wants us to respond like the blind man. So let's just unpack that just briefly, just one or two more minutes. Let's be obedient to what Jesus asks us to do, even if it's a bit odd. You know, it is a bit odd to be given a mud pack, isn't it, and sent to a pool. <laughs> What's that about, Jesus? And, I, you know, looking in all the research of the scholarship, nobody's got a very good idea of what the mud pack is about. Here's my, here's my five P's worth of contribution to that debate. I think that the mud pack is a symbol of the filters on all of our eyes. That's what I think. I think we all have a mud pack. And actually, as we, as we respond to Jesus and we're obedient to Jesus... Jesus is able to wash away presuppositions. He's able to wash away culture. He's able to wash away tradition. He's able to wash away the fact that I definitely see the dress as, as black and blue. Um, and, and actually, I can really see it for what it is. He's able to take away those cultural mud packs that we all have. So let's be obedient to what Jesus asks us to do, even if it's a bit odd. Speak up clearly and strongly about the one thing you do know that Jesus has done for you. That would be the second thing I would say. Submit to Jesus and be obedient. And then be definite and speak up about the one thing you do know. You know, you don't have to be a, th a theologian or a pastor to have a fantastic testimony and to have a strong faith. Because you know the one thing that Jesus has definitely, definitely done for you. And you can proclaim that. So many of us in this room and online as well will have some things they can point to and go, yeah, Jesus absolutely did that for me. I remember a time at the, second, in the, at the end of the second year in Bible college, no money left whatsoever, and, and Chloe and I prayed, and we had an absolute miracle provision to get us through the third year, and it came from the inland revenue of all people. You know, I mean, they're the last people to be generous, can I just say? That's a miracle right there. I can point to that and go, I have absolute confidence that, Lord, whatever, whatever tight spot you put me in financially, if I'm operating in the place where you want me to be, you will provide. And I might sweat a bit, and it might get to the 13th hour. <laughs> we talk about 11th hour. I'm beginning to see God, I think, is a 13th hour God. Because, you know, sometimes people are dead, and then he does the miracle, as we, see, as we saw last week. But God can do incredible things. So speak up clearly and strongly about the one thing that you do know that Jesus has done for you. And then the final thing where we can copy the blind man is go on a journey of discovering who Jesus really is. Go on that journey. Go on a, on a journey of appreciating him more and more and more and get more and more deeply aware of who he is because he's a very special guy. He's not just a bloke. He is a prophet. He is the son of man. He is obedient. He is filled with God's will. And he is a miracle worker. And he is the son of God. Let's go on that journey and receive him into our lives because he's great. Let's all stand. And I'm going to suggest some responses you might want to make uh, that you might want to come down the front. If you have 
a need for Jesus to do a miracle in your life, then just come and ask him for that at the front. Don't wait, just come and ask and petition him while we sing. That's completely appropriate in this season. Why don't you come and stand at the front if you would like a a great testimony of God doing some amazing things in your life? You know, maybe you're one of those people that's just had the wonderful blessing of always being in a Christian family and, 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 and somehow your journey in God has been a kind of nice warm fuzz. And it's been great, you know, and you, you can't complain, but you can't put your finger on any one thing where God has gone zap. And maybe in this season, over this next few weeks, you would just, it would just do wonders for your faith if God came through for you on something really big. Just really special where you could go, yeah, I know that you did that, Lord God. And then the last thing would be, are you a person that you're conscious that you've got a bit of a mud pack on your eye, culturally? And actually, you'd really like Jesus to wash it off. That you know that sometimes you're biased in situations of conflict. You know that you've got cultural stuff that gets in the way of you seeing Jesus properly. That you've got some, uh, some stuff that are you know, preconceived notions that you carry around with you. Maybe you even sense on the inside, oh, I'm turning into a bit of a Pharisee. I don't want to be like that. That's in some ways the bravest thing to respond to. Because it admits that we, it admits that, yeah, we might not quite see things as we hope we would see them. We're going to sing right now, and if you want to continue to make your way down the front and respond, then that's completely appropriate, and we'll offer some further responses after we've sung. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much.